Welcome to our Didache Divine Service. On the Lord's Prayer tonight, session 14, one brief announcement. The hymn board is correct. The final hymn is 884. I neglected to change the number from a 3 to a 4 in the handout. We begin with 766. Again, the Lord's Prayer hymn stanzas one through five, uh, and we'll complete the stanzas in preparation for the sacrament. Each stanza takes up a portion of the Lord's Prayer, introduction, first petition, second petition, and so forth through to the conclusion. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Almighty and most merciful God, in this earthly life we endure sufferings and death before we enter into eternal glory. Grant us grace at all times to subject ourselves to your holy will and to continue steadfast in the true faith to the end of our lives that we may know the peace and joy of the blessed hope of the resurrection of the dead and of the glory of the world to come. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hymn 766.
I invite you to turn in the hymnal to page 323. And the first section of the Didache tonight will just walk through each of the petitions of the Lord's Prayer, beginning with the introduction. Bearing in mind what you went through with Pastor Gelbach last week, I was grateful that he was able to substitute with me while I went to the Board for National Mission meeting in St. Louis. I should be with you for the duration of Wednesday nights from here on out. But in that particular text from Luke 11, the disciples had come to Jesus and said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as Moses taught his disciples. And then he said, when you pray, say, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. So he gave them the very words to pray. And that is very substantive because we don't have to wonder about how to pray. He teaches us how to pray by giving us the very content of prayer. So we're going to take up the small catechism and just walk through Luther's lovely devotional expositions on the Lord's Prayer. Because on the one hand, I don't think there is a liturgical text that is more commonly known by Christians interdenominationally than the Lord's Prayer. And yet on the other hand, there is so little comprehension of what the words actually mean. And so we're going to walk through the small catechism, and I invite you often to take up the small catechism to meditate upon the language there so that your prayers, the voice of faith that claims the promises of God's word, is then enhanced. So on page 323, on the right-hand column, you have the introduction. What is the introduction to the Lord's Prayer? What does this mean? With these words, God tenderly invites us to believe that he is our true father and that we are his true children, so that with all boldness and confidence, we may ask him as dear children Ask their dear father. So look at the text explanation while I'll go through it again and make some comments along the way. Our Father who art in heaven, with these words, namely, with the words, our Father who art in heaven, those are God's words. With these words, God tenderly invites us to believe. Anytime he speaks his word, his word is truth. He wants us to believe it, to trust it. So with these words, God tenderly invites us to believe. To believe what? That he is our true father. And he wants us to believe that we're his true children. If we really believe that he was our true father, and that we were his true children, and that he loved us greater and better than any earthly father, we would have absolute boldness and confidence like little children to cry out to him for help or to give thanks and praise to him and to celebrate with him in times of joy. I mean, we would have no holes barred. We would have a sense of free access because he loves us. So with these words, he tenderly invites us to believe he is our true father. We are his true children. And for what purpose? 
so that with all boldness and confidence we may ask him as dear children ask their dear father. So remember last week, hello, help me, help me, I have a friend, I need some bread. And the guy won't get out of bed to give his neighbor bread because he cares for him, but he does get out of bed because he wants to go to sleep. But that's not how God is. God the Father truly loves us. So if we're going to badger a neighbor because we know he'll eventually give in, how much more our Heavenly Father? So with these words, he invites us tenderly to believe he's our true Father, we're his true children, so that with all boldness and confidence we may ask him, as dear children ask their dear Father. Please notice also the baptismal theme. In holy baptism, we become the children of God. God becomes our Father through His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. That gives us a status, an access, as children of God that the unbeliever and the unbaptized do not have. Okay, so that's very foundational. Any questions about that? All right, first petition. That's the next one. What is the first petition? Hallowed be thy name. Now, the root of the word hallowed is holy. Holy be your name. Hallowed be thy name. What does this mean? God's name is certainly holy in itself, but we pray in this petition that it may be kept holy among us also. Stop. We don't make God's name holy. God's name is holy because he is holy. What we're asking in this petition is that God's name would be holy in our lives. Now the next question explains how that happens. Now, before we read it, holiness is always connected to God's word. Do you remember how significant God's word has been in our study of the scriptures in Didache? By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. God said, let there be, and there was and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Adam and Eve had their life from God's word. When they turned away from God's word and ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they were separated from God and they died. So life comes from God's word, death when we're separated from God's word. So all depends upon God's word. Okay? So we're praying that it may be kept holy among us also, so the how is this done? Notice the emphasis upon God's word. In his high priestly prayer on the night of his betrayal, Jesus spoke about the concept of holiness, saying to his heavenly Father, sanctify them, the apostles, in your truth. Your word is truth. And then he said, I don't pray for them alone, the apostles, but for those who will believe in me through their word. You and I and all Christians have come to faith by the word of God. So the first petition, hallowed be thy name, has to do with God's word, which makes everything holy that it touches. All right, so the next question, how is God's name kept holy? God's name is kept holy when the word of God is taught in its truth and purity, and we as the children of God also lead holy lives according to it. Help us to do this, dear Father in heaven. But anyone who teaches or lives contrary to God's word profanes the name of God among us. 
protect us from this heavenly Father. So God's name is kept holy when the word is taught in its truth and purity. So if I teach the word of God to you faithfully, God's name is being hallowed by that. If you receive that word and then lead your life as a Christian according to God's word, not only in terms of faith in Christ, but also in terms of faithfulness in your vocation, whatever you are, men, women, husbands, wives, fathers, mothers, workers of every kind, to lead your life according to God's word, that is a holy life. So God's name is kept holy when the word is taught in its truth and purity, and we as the children of God lead holy lives according to it. Notice, there's a prayer that Luther puts in, help us to do this. Help me as a pastor to do it. Help us as hearers of God's word to follow it. But anyone who teaches contrary to God's word, profanes the name of God among us, treats it like dirt, protect us from this heavenly father. So to preach or teach contrary to God's word or to lead your life in a way that's contrary to God's word is a profane life. To preach and teach according to God's word and to live your life according to God's word is a holy life. So that's what you're praying for in this first petition. Question. Paul. So, are we then not always profaning God's word by the fact that we sin often and almost... Sure. So you hear the question, are we not always profaning God's word since we sin often? Yes. No wonder embedded in the center of the Lord's Prayer is forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. So, the holy life is a life lived according to God's word, and at the centerpiece of that, Paul, is the daily need for forgiveness. If you remember, uh, under baptism, daily contrition and repentance, the old Adam dies, the new man rises up. Yeah. So that actually is part of the holy life. To, to, to live according to God's word, and when you stumble, to live in repentance according to God's word. Okay, so that's part of the holy life. I, so I, I think his question is an important one because we think of, well, I'm, I'm holy now, I have no sin, I have no struggle with sin. Oh no. A holy life is not a life that has no struggle with sin, but in the struggle with sin, we're led to daily contrition and repentance and we're constantly returning back to the Lord for renewal, for refreshment by his forgiveness. Great question. Okay. Let's go on to the second petition. And you have to turn the page for that, or you're on 324. What is the second petition? Thy kingdom come. What does this mean? The kingdom of God certainly comes by itself without our prayer, but we pray in this petition that it may come to us also. Similar to the first petition, God's name is holy in itself. So here, God's kingdom comes by itself. Both of those statements are good news. They're very comforting. Because if we were the ones who caused God's name to be holy, well, that would never happen. If we were the ones responsible for bringing about God's kingdom, it would never happen. So God's kingdom certainly comes by itself. Then what are we praying for? We're praying that it may come to us also. Now the next part, it'll talk about the kingdom of God, and it is related to the word of God. 
And here the kingdom of God is focused upon faith in Christ. The gift of the Holy Spirit and faith in Christ. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who, through the word, creates faith, sustains faith. So there's an inseparable linkage between the word of God under the first petition and the kingdom of God, the gift of the Holy Spirit and faith under the second petition. We can think of the coming of Christ, you know, the coming of the eternal kingdom. It doesn't exclude that in this petition, but we're never going to be prepared for the second coming of Christ unless the kingdom of God comes to us now. That is to say, the gift of the Holy Spirit and faith in Jesus now. If we have that coming to us now, then we are prepared when he comes again in glory. Do you follow? So go on to the next question. How does God's kingdom come? God's kingdom comes when our Heavenly Father gives us his Holy Spirit so that by his grace we believe his holy word and lead godly lives here in time and there in eternity. God's kingdom comes when our Heavenly Father gives us his Holy Spirit, which is his gift through the word and through the promise of the word in baptism. When he gives us his Holy Spirit, for what purpose? So that by his grace, because we can't do it by our works, it's by grace, we believe his holy word. And at the heart of that is believing the gospel, Paul, the promise of forgiveness in Jesus. We believe his holy word and lead godly lives here in time and forever after in eternity. So you see how the explanation does look forward to the second coming of Christ, the culmination of God's kingdom. Questions? All right. Now we'll go on to the third petition, and then we'll link all three of these together. What is the third petition? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does this mean? The good and gracious will of God is done, even without our prayer. But we pray in this petition that it may be done among us also. Here again. God's name is holy in itself. We pray it be kept holy among us. God's kingdom comes by itself. We pray it may come to us also. The good and gracious will of God is done by itself without our prayer. We pray it may be done among us also. So this is so very comforting to know that his name is holy. His kingdom comes. He's the one who does it. And his will is done. He's the one who will, now recite in a moment, breaks and hinders every evil plan and purpose of devil, world, and flesh. So when we're praying, prayer is always resting upon the promises of God. So he speaks, and what he speaks creates faith, and we'll see that tonight in the Canaanite woman. And out of that faith, there's the voice of faith that claims the very promises that he makes. It's a wonderful circle. So it's like children, by their parents, are promised something, and then... The children remember that promise and they badger mom and dad to get what mom and dad promised. Okay? Now, if you promise uh, to give them some bitter medicine, they're probably not going to ask you for, please give me that bitter medicine. But if you promise them Culver's custard, why? You promised to have custard. Can I have that custard now? So we've got to think of the promises of God 
are all of the gifts and good news of the gospel, as well as the promise to provide daily bread, which is coming up and so forth. So with all boldness and confidence, we should cry out to him for those gifts. So this is why prayer is the voice of faith that claims those particular promises. All right, so thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The on earth as it is in heaven, in the structure of the Greek, applies to not only the third petition, thy will be done, but also the first and the second. And that's how Luther gets that explanation at the beginning of each of these first three petitions that sounds so similar. God's name is holy in itself. We pray it be holy among us. You think God's name is holy in heaven. We pray it may be holy among us on earth. His kingdom is in the heavens. We pray it may come to us on earth. His will is done in the heavens. We pray it may be done on earth. So that phrase applies to all three. Go on to the next question. How is God's will done? God's will is done when he breaks and hinders every evil plan and purpose of the devil, the world, and our sinful nature, which do not want us to hallow God's name or let his kingdom come, and when he strengthens and keeps us firm in his word and faith, until we die. This is his good and gracious will. So notice how in the explanation here, thy will be done, it is connected to the first and the second petition. So you could ask it this way, is it God's will that his word be taught in its truth and purity? Yes. That we lead our lives according to God's word? Yes. Is it God's will that his kingdom come among us with the gift of faith? Yes. So therefore, it is his will to break and hinder every evil plan of devil, world, and flesh because the devil, the world, and our flesh do not want God's word to be taught. They don't want his name to be hallowed. They don't want us to come to believe in Jesus. So it's God's will that he strengthens us and keeps us firm in his word and faith until we die. I think so many people look at the Lord's Prayer, third petition, thy will be done as that kind of case, sarah, sarah, whatever will be, will be. Now, there's many things we don't know about with certainty. Is this God's will or not? Is it God's will that we get a foot of snow tomorrow or three inches? I don't know. We'll have to wait and see. But I know it's God's will that I believe in his son. I know it is God's will that my sins are forgiven for Jesus' sake. I know it is God's will that I remain a faithful Christian pastor for your benefit. So I don't have to pray like, dear Lord, if it is your will, make me a faithful preacher of your word. Otherwise, I'll go about preaching false doctrine if that is your will. Well, what kind of a nonsensical, ridiculous prayer is that? Most of our prayers are spent more on things for which we have no sure and certain promise than we spend our prayers on those things for which we have a certain promise. It doesn't mean we can't pray for things for which we don't know if it is God's will, and we say, thy will be done, in that sense, whatever is your will. But the Lord's Prayer, every petition of the Lord's Prayer is first a promise of God's word before it is our prayer, and it's a certain promise. So to pray that God would keep and preserve us in his word and faith until we die against devil, world, and flesh... That is God's good and gracious will. 
and we can pray it with certainty and confidence. Questions? All right, so you see how the first three petitions tie together. Now, the fourth petition deals with very earthly things. We can also think of the fourth petition in connection with the sacrament of the altar, the daily bread there. But Luther focuses in the small catechism explanation on the gift of daily bread, everything that has to do with the support and needs of the body. So, what is the fourth petition? Give us this day our daily bread. What does this mean? God certainly gives daily bread to everyone without our prayers, even to all evil people. But we pray in this petition that God would lead us to realize this and to receive our daily bread with thanksgiving. Look at how comforting that is. God certainly gives daily bread to everyone, even to all evil people. Wow. Do any of you know people who have absolutely no faith in Jesus whatsoever? Do you know people who boast about being atheists? What a sign of God's love that he feeds even the atheist. If daily bread were dependent upon our faith and our prayers for daily bread, we would all starve to death because our prayers so often fall short of crying out to the Lord regularly for those things. So look at the wisdom of the petition's explanation. God certainly gives daily bread to everyone without our prayers, even to all evil people. That is a relief. Then what are we praying for? Most especially, we pray in this petition that he would lead us to realize that and to receive our daily bread with thanksgiving. And here's the wonderful paradox. The more we actually come to believe and learn to believe that God gives daily bread to everyone without our prayers as a gift of his love, the more spontaneous and eagerly we will pray for those gifts. And out of those prayers, learn to trust in him to provide for our daily bread according to his good and gracious will. So in the next part of this explanation, what is meant by daily bread, look at the superabundance of this explanation. The Catechism says daily bread includes everything that has to do with the support and needs of the body. So if it includes everything, then why spell it out? Because we tend to not realize what everything means. And even at the end, he will say, and the like. In other words, there's even more than what he has listed. But I think here, under the fourth petition, we tend to think of daily bread simply in terms of food for the stomach. We don't tend to think of clothing as a part of daily bread, or a spouse, or devout children, or civil government that is devout and faithful. Maybe we ought to pray more for daily bread and think about civil government 
Okay. So let's go through that. What is meant by daily bread? Daily bread includes everything that has to do with the support and needs of the body, such as food, drink, clothing, shoes, house, home, land, animals, money, goods, a devout husband or wife, devout children, devout workers, devout and faithful rulers, good government, good weather, peace, health, self-control, good reputation, good friends, faithful neighbors, and the like. There's even more. But all of those good gifts are part of what make life not only enjoyable, but which give us the capacity to live in this world. And we live in a world which has such a distorted view of God, if there is a view of God, whereby he is separate and distinct from us. And if it's going to be, it's up to me, I'm on my own, a naturalistic world, and so forth. But the biblical portrait is that God is our creator, and not only our creator once upon a time, but he continually provides for and sustains his creation. And this is why we should look at the entire global climate change issue in terms of how the scriptures speak of it. Namely, while the earth remains, there will be seed time and harvest, cold and heat, day and night, you know, spring, summer, fall and winter. That's the promise after the flood. And so when we pray the Lord's Prayer, for, uh, give us this day our daily bread, we're praying that we might learn to believe that. And when there's famines and earthquakes and pestilence and so forth, according to the biblical record, God has purposes behind these things the great flood at Noah's time, the famine during the times of the patriarchs, the plagues in Egypt, all of which affected nature, the great drought during the time of Elijah. God was behind all of that. The curse of the fall, the pain of childbirth and child rearing, and the sweat of your brow in daily work, the thorns and the thistles, that's not caused because of carbon emission. It's caused because of the problem of sin and God's curse of the creation and how he is behind these things in order to wake us up. It's part of a function of repentance attached to the proclamation of God's law. God is in control of his creation for his good and gracious purposes. So part of the Lord's Prayer is to pray this to learn to believe it and to trust it. Okay? Question. Beth? I was just wondering how he says house and home. House and home. You want a yeah. distinction there? Yeah, I mean, like I'm thinking how important the home is. Yes, so the house is the structure. The home are the people. You can make a home anywhere in a one room shack or in a mansion. Yeah. All right. The fifth petition. What is the fifth petition? And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Notice the and at the beginning of the fifth petition. It is in the context of all of the stuff of daily bread, the having of it, the not having of it, it being compromised, taken from us, those interpersonal relationships that were outlined in daily bread, whereby we feel the problem of sin most acutely. Okay? So, give us this day our daily bread. 
and forgive us our trespasses. People lie and cheat and steal and compromise the gifts of daily bread. The devout husband or wife is not so devout. Devout children are not so devout. The good government is not so good. We lose faith in the face of good weather that's not so good. You see, so give us this day our daily bread. We might learn to believe that. And we so often fail and we feel our sins most acutely in the context of all of those things of daily bread. So we pray and forgive us our trespasses. Here's where I want to especially focus on the plural pronouns, which we haven't mentioned at all tonight, that run throughout the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven. You know, give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses. Here again, I think most of us think in the Lord's Prayer in terms of my Father, give me my daily bread, forgive me my sins. But what the plural pronouns do are a couple of things. First, we're a congregation of baptized Christians. So we have a relationship with one another. We live in love and forgiveness for one another. That's what characterizes the nature of the body of Christ. But then even more importantly, the plural pronouns refer to our connection to Jesus. So when he says, when you pray, say, Our Father who art in heaven, the most important person in that plural pronoun is Jesus. Because God the Father hears our prayers for Jesus' sake, through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And it's our Savior, Jesus Christ, and his forgiveness, his word, hallowed be thy name, the gift of faith in the Holy Spirit, the second kingdom, the, the, the uh, second petition that unites us together. And when we gather together corporately as the body of Christ, the church, that's what we're doing forgiving trespasses of one another as God in Christ has forgiven us. Okay. It also is the basis then, Paul, for all of our petitions. Without the Lord's forgiveness, we have no right to pray or stand before him. So let's go through the explanation. What does this mean? We pray in this petition that our Father in heaven would not look at our sins or deny our prayer because of them. We are neither worthy of the things for which we pray, nor have we deserved them. But we pray that he would give them all to us by grace. For we daily sin much, and surely deserve nothing but punishment. So we too will sincerely forgive, and gladly do good to those who sin against us. Notice how the bulk of that explanation rests entirely upon God's grace that we don't deserve because we daily sin much. We deserve nothing but punishment. That he would answer our prayers on the basis of his grace because if he asked, answered it on the basis of our worthiness, we would have no right to pray for anything. So we pray in this petition, our Father in heaven would not look at our sins or deny our prayer because of them. We're neither worthy of the things for which we pray nor have we deserved them. But we ask that he give them all to us by grace. Why? Because we daily sin much and surely deserve nothing but punishment. Now, finally then, so we too will sincerely forgive. So the more we are receiving the Lord's grace and forgiveness, the greater the capacity it is for us to live in forgiveness and mercy toward one another. He forgives us not at all upon the basis of our merits. How can we hold the sins 
of others against them when God in Christ forgives us freely. And so the fifth petition is the petition for approaching the Lord's Supper. In fact, the entire Lord's Prayer, depending upon its context, takes on a different character. Like, like a diamond, if you turn it in the sunlight and it refracts the light around the full spectrum of light, the rainbow colors. So depending on how the light hits it, you see new colors. Depending on the context of the Lord's Prayer, your understanding of it is deepened. So I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. No wonder we pray the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Because God's name is being hallowed in that baptism with the divine name. His kingdom is coming, you see. And he's breaking and hindering the evil plans and purposes of the devil in that baptism. When we're at the Lord's Supper, God's name is certainly being hallowed as kingdom is coming and so forth. But then give us this day our daily bread. It is the bread that sustains us. And forgive us our trespasses. We're letting go of one another's sins at the altar. And we're led not into temptation, but we're delivered from the evil one. All right. I'm going to finish up the petitions the next time we attack the Lord's Prayer. Now, that's probably a bad choice of words. The next time we are studying the Lord's Prayer in Lent. And our didache in Lent uh, is going to, on Wednesday nights, make use of the Passion according to St. Matthew, uh, starting the week after Ash Wednesday. So Ash Wednesday will focus on confession and absolution in the context of the Old Testament reading appointed for Ash Wednesday. Rend your heart and not your garments, and return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and merciful. We now turn to the Bible reading for tonight. It is a brief reading, Matthew 15, 21 through 28. And it is the account of the Canaanite woman, sometimes called the Syrophoenician woman. She is not a Jew, she's a Gentile. But she comes to Jesus in faith and she cries out to him a brief but fervent prayer in which she prays for mercy and lays her need before the Lord. So Jesus went out from there and departed to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which is present-day Lebanon, Phoenicia in the ancient world, so it would be north of Israel. And behold, a woman of Canaan came from that region and cried out to him, saying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Is it a legitimate need? her daughter's demonic affliction. Absolutely. O Lord, son of David, does she believe him to be the Messiah, the Christ? Absolutely. Have mercy on me. Should she be praying for mercy for herself, for her daughter? Absolutely. So the prayer is a legitimate prayer according to what we've talked about in terms of God's word, the voice of faith that cries out to God for help, that claims his promises. The gospel promises mercy, deliverance from Satan, from sin. This is nothing trivial here. One other thing I want to add before moving on in the text is 
Have mercy on me, my daughter is severely demon-possessed. If you have a loved one who doesn't believe or is in a state of torment, it is an attack upon you by Satan. In other words, if you have someone, for example, who has left the faith of their baptism, fallen into grievous sin, that is an attack upon your faith. The devil wants to use those in your life who have fallen away from the Lord Jesus to drag you away from the Lord Jesus. So the impact of Satan's afflictions upon others, also whom we love, also afflicts us and tempts us away from the Lord. So have mercy on me, O Lord. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Verse 23. But he answered her not a word. And his disciples came and urged him, saying, Send her away, for she cries out after us. Have you ever felt in your prayers that God is not listening? He answered her not a word. Have you ever felt in your prayers as if you had not the right to pray? Send her away, she cries out after us. She's a Gentile, she's a woman, she's not an Israelite, she has no standing, get rid of her. And those were churchmen driving her away. And then, verse 24, but he answered and said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Is she part of the house of Israel? No. So now the Lord seems to agree with the disciples. Then she came and worshipped him, saying, Lord, help me. So in the face of this experience, first silence from Jesus, then the disciples rebuke, send her away. Her response is to worship. Undeterred by the experience of seemingly being rebuked or ignored, she worships. And to worship is the faith that yearns for Christ and desires his forgiveness, his mercy more than anything else. That's the heart of worship. Everybody in the Gospels who fell down and worshipped Jesus, not a single one of them was falling down and worshipping him, patting themselves on the back. They were all falling down and worshiping him as poor, miserable sinners. Say, Lord, I need you. All right. So then, he answered and said, It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Who would the children be? The Israelites. So it's not right to take the children of Israel's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Who would the little dogs be? The Gentiles. Now, it seems as if he's calling her a little dog. It's a good thing I don't preach this way. The whole congregation would leave. How dare you speak to me that way? 
But of course, if we take offense at being called a little dog, shouldn't we take offense at being called poor, miserable sinners who deserve temporal and eternal damnation? Isn't that what we say in the liturgy? I think I'd rather be a little puppy eating the dogs, that, the crumbs that fall from the master's table than a poor, miserable sinner that is deserving of temporal and eternal damnation. Okay. Now, how does she respond? She said, yes, Lord. Yet even the little dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Does she reject his word? Actually, she agrees with it. Yeah, I'm a little dog. I'm a Gentile woman. I have no standing. Or to put it the way I just did in the liturgy, I'm a poor, miserable sinner. But even poor, miserable sinners eat the crumbs of mercy that fall from the master's table. Then Jesus answered and said to her, O woman, great is your faith. Let it be to you as you desire. And her daughter was healed from that very hour. Jesus says, O woman, great is your faith. Faith is trust, reliance, dependence, even love. And for whom was her trust and her reliance and her dependence and her love and her belief? Entirely for him. Was it in herself? No. Was it in her act of believing? No. So when Jesus says to her, O woman, great is your faith, he is not congratulating her for as if she created this faith in her heart. He is not congratulating her for the act of believing, but rather for the object of her faith. It is as if he were saying, O woman, great is your Jesus. Great is your Lord to whom you are crying out, whom you are worshiping. Because she knew and believed the promise of the gospel. So how do we explain Jesus' actions? First, the silence. Then I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Well, he was sent to the lost sheep. First of all, silence. God sometimes seems to remain silent or allow affliction to come into our lives precisely that we might learn to cry out to him. I know that might sound cruel and sadomasochistic or something like that, but through the things that we suffer, we are taught our need. And through adversity and trial and tribulation, we are taught by the gospel to rely upon his love. I was not sent to, except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. That's true. The Messiah first came to Israel. That through Israel, the blessing of salvation might come to all humanity. St. Paul speaks of this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first. Not because they're less sinful than the other parts of humanity. Not at all. But rather, through them, he might manifest his grace and salvation in Christ to the whole world. To the Jew first, but also to the Greek or to the Gentile. It would not be right to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. 
No one deserves God's mercy. God's mercy comes on the basis of his grace alone, not on the basis of merit. And she knows that because she believes the gospel. And I would argue with you, remember with this story, the very first parable that we have, we had in Didache, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Do you remember Lazarus died, this poor beggar, and he was carried to Abraham's bosom, a picture of heaven. And we asked the question, why Father Abraham? Because of the promise of the gospel to Father Abraham, in your seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. That was at the beginning of Israel's constitution, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of Israel. So the fundamental promise made to the Israelites, to the children of Israel, is that through the seed of Abraham, all the nations would be blessed. So this Canaanite, this Syrophoenician woman, received that word of the gospel. She believed that word of the gospel. And she wouldn't let go of that word of the gospel because to let go of that word of the gospel that he was savior for all people, she would have no hope. Her daughter would have no hope. They would be lost in their sin and in the devil's affliction. So I submit to you what she was going through with a severely demon-possessed daughter was far worse than some silence from Jesus or a brief rebuke from the disciples, or an apparent rebuke from Jesus. She knew his word. She knew the gospel. She knew the promise. She had seen him heal and restore and forgive countless other unworthy sinners just like her. And she would not let go of this. Now, sometimes people use the word, the, the language of test, like God put her to the test. You can use that, but you have to understand in the Bible when God tests a person, it is not because he doesn't know, but rather through God's tests, he reveals to us what we don't know so that we might come to know it and understand it. Jesus knew her faith. He never would have treated her this way had he not. But by treating her this way, he reveals to the disciples who wanted to send this, and they really did want to send this annoying woman away. But Jesus wasn't annoyed with her. By this test, he reveals what true Christian faith is and how prayer is the voice of faith that entirely rests upon Jesus and the promises of the gospel. O oh, woman, great is your faith. So the test reveals uh, where, that, where that faith is to be placed. Now, all of this that I just went through is explained in the bullets on the back side of your diagram. But on the front side, think about what you went through last week with Pastor Gelbach. God's word is the foundation for prayer. This woman... Her faith and her prayer rested upon the promise of God's word and the promise made to Abraham. Prayer is the voice of faith that claims the promises of God's word she would not let go. God's word is what gives certainty to prayer. She's certain in her prayer. 
Our baptism gives us the rights and privileges of a child, and our prayers are heard for Christ's sake, not because of our merit or worthiness. And she says, true Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. So this is a great illustration of what prayer is, the voice of prayer, and it also is a great illustration of how through the adversity and the experiences of our lives that attack us, God intends to draw us closer to himself by the promises of his word that we cry out to our Lord for forgiveness, for help, for comfort, for strength, that we draw closer to him as we see in this woman. Questions? All right. Let us prepare for the sacrament by the singing of stanzas 6 through 9 of hymn 766.
Beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins unto God our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. Our help is in the name of the Lord. I said, I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them, and I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor, sinful being. Upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God unto all of you, and in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. O God, our Father in heaven, look with mercy on us, your needy children on earth, and grant us grace that your holy name be hallowed by us and all the world through the pure and true teaching of your word and the fervent love shown forth in our lives. Graciously turn us from all false doctrine and evil living, whereby your precious name is blasphemed and profaned. Lord, in your mercy. May your kingdom come to us and expand. Bring all transgressors and those who are blinded and bound in the devil's kingdom to know Jesus Christ, your Son, by faith, that the number of Christians may be increased. Lord, in your mercy. Strengthen us by your Spirit according to your will, both in life and in death, in the midst of both good and evil things, that our own wills may be crucified daily and sacrificed to your good and gracious will. Into your merciful hands, we especially commend Mark Gretzinger and Gabby Hartwig and all who are in need, praying for them at all times, thy will be done, Lord, in your mercy. Grant us our daily bread, preserve us from greed and selfish cares, and help us trust in you to provide for all our needs. Lord, in your mercy. Forgive us our sins, as we also forgive those who sin against us, so that our hearts may be at peace and may rejoice in a good conscience before you and that no sin may ever frighten or alarm us. Lord, in your mercy. Lead us not into temptation, O Lord, 
but help us by your spirit to subdue our flesh, to turn from the world and its ways, and to overcome the devil with all his wiles. Lord, in your mercy. Lastly, O Heavenly Father, deliver us from all evil of both body and soul, now and forever, through your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. For what had been hidden from before the foundation of the world, you have made known to the nations in your Son, in him being found in the substance of our mortal nature, you have manifested the fullness of your glory. Therefore, with angels and archangels, and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of all creation, for you have had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. As the glory of your presence once filled your ancient temple, so in the incarnation of your Son, Jesus Christ, you manifested the fullness of your glory in human flesh. We give you thanks that in his most holy supper you reveal your glory to us. Grant us faithfully to eat his body and drink his blood so that we may one day behold your glory face to face. Hear us as we pray in his name and as he has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks... He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, 
which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world. Have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world. Have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world. Grant us thy peace.
Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Almighty and everlasting God, we thank and praise you for feeding us the life-giving body and blood of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Send us your Holy Spirit that having with our mouths received the Holy Sacrament, we may by faith obtain and eternally enjoy your divine grace, the forgiveness of sins, unity with Christ, and life eternal. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.